given an infinite universe and infinite time, all things will happen. That means every event is inevitable, including those that are impossible. And it's as good an explanation for all of this as anything else. Now, a lot of stories start in bars, so that's where we're going to start this one. Not because I was there, I wasn't, but because it's a damn good introduction to a very unique fellow. <laughs> Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the, with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Sunday, September 2nd, 2018, and I'm driving my life away, looking for a better way, looking for a sunny day for me. And our guide today on this adventure is synchromistic filmmaker Jordan Barty. Jordan's work can be found on YouTube under the Sync Century moniker, to which we'll naturally link. We first met Jordan back in the spring of 2017 on episode number 272, where we discussed his initiation. Then in February of the following year, we dug into Me Too and John Carpenter on episode 299. Since then, Jordan has released two videos, one more on Prince of Darkness and his latest on the 2002 film Interstate 60, a film this program considered way back on episode 10. I'm pleased to be welcoming I'm pleased to be welcoming Jordan back because toward the end of the summer I've had a trio of books in my head that resonate quite well. Uh, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, Dean Radin's Real Magic, and Gary Lockman's Dark Star Rising. They seem to play very nice with Jordan's recent work, and I'm excited to talk about it. How are you doing today, Jordan? I'm excellent. How are you doing, Doug? Pretty good. Uh, it's been a it's been a lazy, lazy summer for me, but I'm I'm happy to be doing nice. shows again. So, uh, but um, you know, I've never asked this question. Where would you like to start? Well, <laughs> hmm. I've never been asked that question exactly in that way. Um. Well, I guess it makes sense to start with Interstate 60. I mean, first of all, I haven't heard episode 10. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go check that out. Um, I'm kind of moving backwards through the. 42 minutes archives because because I'm such a latecomer to everything <laughs> and there's so much material but uh, I'll skip to episode 10 today and uh, yeah it was it was funny because when I saw that you did a video w you know with Interstate 60 at its heart I mean so I would have never found that movie or watched it without like uh, Will's prompting just because for whatever reason that film right, really right. seems like it was designed. Oh, you know, for Will, because of just the way the subject matter. And then, I mean, for Zemeckis, it seems awfully cussy was the thing that I remembered. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it Zemeckis? Well, um, sort, well, not directly. It's Bob Gale, you know, who co-wrote Back to the Future with Zemeckis. And so it's, it's the only thing that Gale ever directed, I think, except maybe for this uh, weird interactive like laser disc experimental thing that happened in the middle of the nineties and is unfortunately no longer viewable as far as I can tell. But Zemeckis's thumbprints are all over it anyway, because interstate 60 is constructed in such a way that it's almost like a, a, um, yeah, like a, like a meta film or a commentary on back to the future. 
it's, it's in a way similar to how Back to the Future Part Two, you know, recreates a lot of scenes from Part One, like explicitly. There's the whole hoverboard chase with Griff, which is just like the skateboard chase with Biff in the first movie, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Interstate 60 is kind of pulling maneuvers like that as well, although in a, in a slightly more subliminal way most of the time. But so, so a lot of the Zemeckis, like, I don't know, Zemeckis imagery and Zemeckis concerns kind of float through anyway, although it's hard to separate too, like what's Zemeckis and what's Gale in, in the Back to the Future films anyway, because it was such a deep, you know, collaboration between those two, but... Well, and the other interesting thing, I guess, I kind of realized is that there's a bit of a convergence between Carpenter and Zemeckis in this film a little bit. Yes. Or, yeah, well, so there's some weird thing going on with O.W.'s pipe. O.W. is this, uh, it's played by Gary Oldman, right? And he's this, like, basically he's a synchronicity genie. He kind of assists the main character Neil Oliver in going on this individuation quest to reunite with his anima uh, played by Amy Smart, which kind of represents like his creativity in the film. And, and he needs to like, he needs to integrate his creativity into his life. Basically that's the whole like (laughs) plot structure of the movie. And then, and then OW is kind of assisting with that through the working of synchronistic miracles kind of, behind the scenes with Ray (laughs) played by Christopher Lloyd, who also you then find in interstate 60 situated in symbolic fields that seem to be referencing back to the future. Like for instance, one of the early scenes we see Ray in when we're kind of getting to know Ray a little bit, he's sitting right underneath a clock that's set to 10, four, which is an obvious reference to the tower strike time. There's all these interesting, like, yeah, these interesting, um, extremely subtle threads, like linking Interstate 60 to Back to the Future, that seem deliberate. I don't think that the Carpenter connections are conscious, probably. I mean, maybe. I mean, who knows? Because Interstate 60 raises so many weird questions about Bob Gale and what his life experience must have been. And, you know, it's really... Really hard to speculate, I guess. But uh, but in any case, OW's pipe is is it's like this monkey pipe that emits green smoke, and it's somehow that smoke that works the miracles. But then, <laughs> but then also Neil, the main character, the, the whole kind of uh, dr- action driving thing in the film is that he has to deliver this package. But what's in the package is O.W.'s pipe. And then close to the end of the film, actually right in the middle of this subliminal Twin Pines Mall recreation that I track in my film, we hear this thing on the radio <laughs> that implies that, the, that, that what's in the package is actually a murder weapon. So it's like the murder weapon, the package, and the pipe are all kind of symbolically linked and blended together also with the binoculars and the eight ball, <laughs> which is very interesting because it's kind of like far sight or maybe inner sight, but then also with the notion of, of a kind of an Oracle or appealing to some kind of a chancy, uh, 
process in a divinatory kind of way, all of that's fused together with the pipe as the ego killer or the persona killer. <laughs> and that's just, that's just like the myth structure of the film. But then it's like, you've got to imagine that Gale isn't that naive that he would, that he wouldn't consider, you know, a green smoke from a pipe as a cannabis reference. So it, it really does seem that there's some strange, yeah, psychedelic lunar narrative <laughs> running through interstate 60, but then also impossibly running through back to the future because it seems like interstate 60 exists to kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it, like correct back to the future. You know, it, it, it highlights certain themes in back to the future, it pulls out certain things, de-emphasizes other things. And so if you read the whole like back to the future trilogy together with <laughs> interstate 60, you get this very interesting thing, even taking all the 9-11 correspondence out of it or whatever. That's a whole other kind of layer of the, of the films in a way. But I just mean at the level of kind of mythic and psychological analysis. There's just a tremendous amount going on. Anyway, that's the stuff that I'm trying to unpack very slowly and methodically on my archive.org project, which is just like a it's kind of like a film seminar. Like it's basically just me talking and watching movies, but we're slowly kind of working through like the whole back to the future trilogy at the moment. Uh, almost done with that. Sorry, yeah. That was a huge sprawling answer. <laughs> Very, I'm, I'm you know, curious I, before we, we dig into the details of I 60. So archive.org yeah. is something that you set up and is it more like instead of, um, well, like completed so works, is, like, is it works in progress or like how does that work with your sync no, practice? So, right. So archive.org is, is just a, it's like, it's like a nonprofit company actually. Um, but it's, you know, it's an actual library. So they have all kinds of archival material there. And I didn't realize this till after I had migrated my stuff there, but they actually were like centrally involved in this massive 9-11 media archiving project. And they have this huge, awesome thing there. It's like this giant data object that just has all the media from 9-11, from like the day of the broadcast, and all the major media broadcasts, like time synchronized in a giant grid that you can just jump around to at any point and see what was on every channel simultaneously at that point in time. It's a really amazing research tool. Uh, but anyway, they also do video hosting. Ostensibly, it's part of the archive, but actually what it is is a kind of a weird YouTube clone with no algorithmic policing of content, which is why I had to go there or go somewhere other than YouTube because I'm basically analyzing every single scene, every single shot in these films, and the, the YouTube content ID system was really preventing me from releasing this material, it got to the point where I had like seven or eight hours of material that was just in limbo because of content disputes. And the whole thing with this new video practice for me, is, it's different than my big produced films or whatever. This is more like just a screencast kind of, it's not really produced at all. But the whole idea was that it was just something I could do, you know, a couple times a week in a really steady way. And so the, the YouTube system sort of was breaking that flow. So, I was looking for alternatives and archive.org seemed like the easiest and the least restrictive 
place to go and also the place that maybe vibes with my politics the most because they, they fight for open information stuff. And, uh, also, there's just a lot of weird stuff there <laughs> because it has kind of become this like, uh, yeah, catch for things that can't exist on other video uh, hosting sites. Have have you had to fight with YouTube a bit for your produced films? Yes. Um, yes. Although, for some reason, not as much. I think because I'm mixing in music from other sources, and I tend to be processing the image a lot, you know, and it's little boxes and frames moving around. I actually think it's hard for the bots to detect what I'm using uh, they, they always catch something, but it tends to be just some little section if I used a little too much dialogue without anything else going on or, you know, things like that. And generally I just dispute that. And it takes, you know, it takes a week or two for the dispute to clear. Usually it clears in my favor and then it's all fine. And, and I can deal with that because those films, you know, I only make one of those every half a year or three months or something like that. Um, the first kind of daily content upload, it's just such a, it's just, I don't know, it just stresses me out, too, for some reason. I think, I don't know why it should, because it's just literally just numbers in some system. But, like, you know, I, I kind of, I'm like the edge of my seat when I upload it. You know, I'm like, oh, God, is it going to get blocked? Is it going to get, you know, are they going to monetize it? What's going to go on? Blah, blah, blah. So archive just frees me from <laughs> from the whole, like, bag of, I don't know, low-key, low background emotional stress or something. Okay, so the beginning of Interstate 60... Yeah. We're, we're introduced to Gary Oldman's character, O.W. Grant, and he's riding his bike. He kind of looks – I mean, it, there's a Pee Wee Herman flavor to it. He's he, he, <laughs> Yeah, there totally is a Pee Wee Herman flavor. But he's yeah. kind of a – like, and I think his hair is reddish, but there's this like really it is, yeah. trickster quality to it. And then Michael J. Fox opens his door and totally. crashes yeah. – <laughs> And then uh, it, Michael J. Fox, the character, realizes that his suit is dirty, he's late for a meeting, his phone is broken, and so he says, I wish this never happened. And then, I mean, so the thing that, so th those were the outcomes for Michael J. Fox. The outcome for Gary Oldman's character, O.W. Grant, was that this monkey pipe that he had in his mouth got broken. And then right. Gary Oldman says, is that your wish? And he says, yeah, I wish this never happened. And then... So all of a sudden the scene resets and he's coming around the corner. I, I mean, I guess I failed to mention that a giant garbage truck or something runs over Gary Oldman's bike. <laughs> right. And so Gary Oldman stops before Michael J. Fox opens the door. He steps out. He's talking on his phone. And then the truck runs Michael J. Fox over. But do, is it the the broken monkey pipe kind of the thing that propels the whole story where Gary Oldman wants – It is. It's – yeah, and it's a very interesting, that's a very interesting little, it's barely even a scene, but, you know, a little vignette to open the the movie for a ton of different reasons. I mean, it's interesting just to just to lead with, with a cameo from Michael J. Fox in a film that features James Madsen dressed in basically the same kinds of clothes that Marty wears, you know, like a red jacket and blue jeans on an adventure in a car, you know, it's just another way that the film is kind of explicitly gesturing in the direction of back to the future, right, right at the beginning. But then it's also such an interesting little aphorism there, isn't it? Because 
because it's kind of thematizing the idea of a uh, the idea of um, of how limited our perspective is relative to fate and trying to compute that through time causally because it's like this thing happens that ultimately is a minor inconvenience, right? For Michael J. Fox's character, I don't think is ever named even, but uh, for him, it's some, it's some huge disaster, but, and so it's like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. If I had one wish, I wish this wouldn't have happened, but, but that, you know, it's like, actually that what seemed, what seemed like a disaster was a hidden gift that was saving him from a much worse fate, which he of course had no way of knowing because it's all dependent on things that at least to us seem like chance procedures, but then the film is kind of implying that maybe they're not just chance procedures because OW exists, nudging chance around in such a way as to construct a kind of adventure for you through which you then, I don't know, learn about your own psychology somehow. That's kind of the story of the movie, which is, I feel like the movie is more about synchronicity than it is anything else, really, because that's the, that's the big high-level theme that that is kind of uniting all of these little stories. And the movie's very much like that, right? This, that thing with, with Michael J. Fox and the truck is, is a little like inset story in this bigger narrative that then includes a lot of little things like that. And there are a lot of interesting cameos too, like Kurt Russell turns up at one point and, you know, just blah, blah, blah. Um, but they all kind of have that, this feeling of like, yeah, like little Socratic dialogues or something. Each one is revolving around a different, um, a different topic, but they all seem to kind of relate in some way around the idea of, I don't know, yeah, identity and time and destiny and and uh, and chance and coincidence and synchronicity and all that stuff. So, and so even though I mean I I, I didn't watch the whole film, I, I I'm like touched it and tried to reacquaint myself with it but i mean right off the bat he does you know like he's he needs to he lives his life by synchronicity essentially so he had there's a website (laughs) there's a website should i wear a tie to the lunch and it says yes and he's like oh damn you know but so you know definitely he's willing to consider uh, the influence of synchronicity as important to him and then uh, and i don't remember how he gets the eight ball or why he has it. But. Yeah, the eight, the eight ball is given to him by O.W. Uh, pretty much, I think, after we're already in the dream. Because, you know, Neil gets hit on the head with this paint bucket. And my read is that everything after that is happening in, in yeah, in a coma state, basically. For sure, at some point that happens, because then at the end of the film, he wakes up, and it's the same date on the clock, September 18th, Tuesday which is the day that he went into the hospital at the beginning of the film. So the whole movie actually kind of takes place in this like dreamy, um, yeah, like groundhog day loop actually, or something. Um, and, but so like, so, so, the, so the eight ball is possibly not even real, I guess is what, <laughs> is what I'm saying. But the film shows it given to him by, it's a gift from o, OW, birthday well, present. Well, so the, the interesting thing about, kind of where my head's at right now has to do with interstate is you know in a material sense the road that he's driving on 
It you know it's right. the it's the it's the linkage between you know there's the places of interest, but at the same time it's also like interstates between states of yes. being. Yes, yes. And so and that's kind of communicated at the end when he wakes up and he's got like a bouquet with it's uh it's a card on there, it's, uh, like a playing card, but instead of a, a normal spade, I think it's a red spade. So it just right, yeah. it just kind of shows that even though you think it was a dream, it, it, it's that kind of Wizard of Oz thing. Even though it didn't really happen, yeah, yeah. it really did happen. You know, like and and that's the thing. That's it happened, a, <laughs> right? <laughs> it happened psychically. So Neil really transformed somehow. Yes. You know? Like so, we yeah. definitely privilege the material world. However, there are other worlds than these. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really, I just find you know the whole thing, just that part of it, right? It's such a, such an interesting coincidence that this movie, Back to the Future, should become so central in whatever this modern synchronicity research wave is, kind of independently, right? And then. You just kind of happen to find that, you know, one of the authors of that thing apparently is himself a sinkhead to some degree. I feel pretty comfortable saying that just on the basis of how that movie exists. I feel like Bob Gale must at least know a little Jung or Joseph Campbell or something. Like his movies are too mythically exact. You know, there's there's, there's all the correct like little imagistic nods and et cetera that you'd expect from the kind of the hero's journey uh, structure there. So I, I think he is, I think he is writing that way and clearly, and clearly he has some interest in synchronicity because, you know, it's hard to understand what it's, it's a little tricky because interstate 60 never says the word synchronicity. You know, it never actually says that, but, but they talk about coincidence a lot. Uh, and chance and fate and all this other stuff. And then what the film is showing you is really thematizing synchronicity. I mean, there's this whole thing with Neil perceiving um, patterns that don't exist <laughs> on billboards. You know, he's like, at one point there's a phone number that appears on a billboard, but nobody else sees the phone number. Only Neil sees it. So it's, you know, it's, it's projection and sync and all that stuff is just happening constantly in this movie. It seems to me that Bob Gale must have some passing familiarity with it. Or the question is like, how deep does that go? And also, when did that happen? Because it's also like, you know, several decades separating those two films. I, I, one wonders if he like how tuned in he was to that stuff when they made Back to the Future, or if Back to the Future didn't kind of accidentally organize archetypally, and then maybe that's what clued Bob Gale into the whole thing eventually. I don't know. Really weird questions there, but well, even Kurt Russell, just as this kind of sink <laughs> yeah. Gordian knot, because yeah, <laughs> well, because because he's first through the Stargate, yeah, <laughs> and because he's in all these John Carpenter movies, and yeah, he's really he gets around Kurt Russell. But why is he in this film? You you know, that's just yeah. It's like yeah, it's it kind of comprehensible. There's bridges there's these no two. Reason you should be in this film. <laughs> Because no. he's not in any Zemeckis movies or anything. I mean, it must somehow be some weird Hollywood friend connection. Bob Gale, I, I guess. The whole movie has that feeling, right, of like a kind of 
a movie where Bob Gale was calling in a ton of favors to get it made. You know, it, it has the feeling of a movie stretching beyond its budget a little bit and struggling to compensate for that with, with some impressive cameo appearances. I don't know. I, I wish there's also like very little press or anything about, about this movie. You know, it, I, I'm pretty sure it was a direct video release. Even I don't think it had a theatrical release really. Yes. I, I, um, like I said, I don't think I ever would have found this. I mean, it, it definitely took a sink head yeah. like, like will to dis. Well, I hadn't heard of it. I heard Joe mention it. Maybe it was, maybe it was on an always record or somewhere. And that's what clued me into its, its existence. I don't, I don't know if I would have found it either. I mean, I guess eventually if you start researching Bob Gale movies, but, but yeah, I'd never heard of it until just a year ago, year and a half ago or something. But, I mean, the really fascinating thing that jumped out at me was in relation to your, your second part of your Prince of Darkness video was, you know, the, yeah. the green you know that, yeah. and, and your, you know, you posit that the green definitely speaks to this idea of the altered state of of drugs and how that does, yeah, uh, and, enable and interstates. I think specifically in their connection to the natural world because of the the greenness of it. You know, I think there is something there's something particular about that. It's kind of it's the womb of nature, and it's a psychedelic chemical, and it's and it makes you into the fool, into the initiate again. So green is really, seems really central there. And Interstate 60 uses it all over the place in all the correct ways. Like, because it's not just the pipe. It's also Ray wears a green jacket. And they make a big, they even mention it in the dialogue, you know, because Neil was trying to explain to the real doctor. The Lloyd character, Lloyd character, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, he's, he's who, a, who actually... He's testing him the, and telling him, your brain, your brain is conditioned. You see the world a certain way. Now break out of that. Totally. They developed the red spade thing as a, as a symbol of, of, of projection and of synchronicity, really. Um, so Ray is dressed in green. And then the billboards that I mentioned that Neil was seeing are all being put up by a company called Green Signs. I mean, green signs seems that one's a little on the nose, even maybe. So I don't know. Do we do we think Bob Gale is like a? Do we think Bob Gale is, is some kind of secret stoner lifer or something? Like, what is going on? It's just so strange to find these things embedded in a movie like Interstate 60, which is tonally so um, hallmarky. <laughs> Or a little Disney or something. Well, you know, that's very... what was so striking to me. It does. It feels more like a kid's movie on some level. But then yes. I thought the language was really crass and foul for... Yeah. It just... It... It's a weird mix of things. It yeah. It really is. Um, do, do you know who Michael Pollan is? Uh, yeah, I do. He just... He just wrote the new book on psychedelics, is that right? He did, but I mean, so he's known for being more of like an environmentalist or like a food writer, kind of back to nature. Yeah, diet guy. food, right. Yeah, and and so it, it just was so shocking that that would be his new thing. Like, I mean, he was yeah. writing about mushrooms before, but like now he, he went to the next step. But so it's really interesting because uh, what I find is most – there, there really is a dogma to science, and people are unwilling to go. They're unwilling to even consider certain ideas because it goes against the dogma of science. 
Um, but True. He, yeah. he, you know, his, he is super mainstream and he's looking at things open-mindedly and considering things that really could become revolutionary, but it's, it's just so fascinating because, uh, psychedelics in, in the mainstream are super stigmatized. And so, you know, I even, you know, we just a bunch of stoners or whatever. There's just kind of this talking down when in fact, you know, totally. right. material is so important. Like it, it just, it seems like, and I, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I even think of like Trump as this symbol of ego and material and how, you know, yes, it's, it's yeah, like yeah. we're crying out. So at the same time we put an ego in chief, you know, the mainstream is considering, you know, what if we blew our minds, you know, and uh, right. <laughs> weren't attached to our ego. What do you make all this? Yeah, I think uh, it definitely seems that psychedelics are having a resurgence of some sort. It's hard to know if that's the beginning of a major of a major wave, you know, or or if it's just a little parenthetical moment. Uh, it seems it seems at least with cannabis that the situation is more than a parenthetical moment <laughs> at this point because all these states are are legalizing and there's a whole bunch of industry and money involved there now and that and that brings in a whole series of self-reinforcing positive feedback loops that are going to kind of cannibalize the culture i think over the next 5 10 15 years um so there does seem to be a feeling of coming to the end of of a of an era of prohibition in fact at least as regards that substance i guess um Michael Pollan's involvement is, you know, it's, it's a very, I've got to admit that definitely, that event definitely made me think maybe we're more poised for a massive wave of some sort. But actually for me, and maybe this just reflect a reflection of my temperament, but I, uh, I just get immediately nervous about all of that because I think about Tim Leary and what happened with psychedelic drugs in the 60s and 70s, which was that a whole bunch of minds got open, but but also a whole bunch of brains got fried. And then it kind of took Hunter S. Thompson to like look back on that and survey the the human carnage. And I think the way that those substances were handled then was were, it was very irresponsible, although understandable, because we really are unique in world history for having like repressed so deeply repressed the use of entheogenic drugs for so long that we have no, there's no, um, there are no wisdom traditions. There's no, there's just no support. There's no guidance around their use. And I think, I think just telling people, Hey, you know, pop, pop some psychedelics and it's going to, you know, <laughs> you'll find God and he'll solve all your problems or whatever. Like, yeah, that will happen for a percentage of people, you know, but another percentage might just, you know, might fry or just have some kind of other experience that isn't what they need or would have wanted or whatever. Right. So, and I'm not at all suggesting that I think actually what Michael Pollan is doing is exactly what needs to be done. You know, it's like bringing some real like education and, <laughs> and some kind of structure around the thing. You have to, you have to attach a little bit of structure to these things that are completely boundary dissolving structure obliterators. Cause if you don't do that, they're just going to eat 
everything. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be pandemonium basically. That's my attitude anyway. So I'm, I'm interested in the, you know, in like the in a, I don't know, like a, I'm interested. I mean, I am interested also in reckless abandon and blowing your head out with drugs. Like that's fine. Uh, but it's like, maybe there's, I don't know, a time for that. And maybe that needs to be balanced with some careful integration of those experiences in, in between or, or something like that. You know what I mean? That'll make or some of that makes sense anyway. It 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 really does. But the the fascinating thing is that I mean definitely Michael Pollan gets into that history. He goes through the you know the prohibition totally. and so he lays it all out. He explains how Timothy Leary became Timothy Leary and how an ego dissolving substance could yeah. create such a giant ego because you yeah. know <laughs> I mean so that's it, the big paradox. Of him. Yeah, it it really but so the, you know the. The concern would be if, um, if so, like he lays it all out in a way that is nuanced and subtle and 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 you know logical and rational, and then if people just jump off that as a diving board and then forget about any lessons that you know this education brings, that could be the you know the right. the drawback. It does seem like we're really in need. I mean, obviously, it's more than seem. We we are very much in need of channels of connection back to the source. That's my opinion, anyway. However, we want to define that. You know, I, I might call it the unconscious or something, but there's something, right? There's some kind of inner human dimension that's it's this. You know, it's this powerful creative center, and I just I feel that we're very much out of touch with it and drugs are a way to get in, in touch with it. I would like to see drugs along with all sorts of other methods, you know, come back into our culture. But yeah. Well, I, I completely agree. So I recently for work had to go to a conference in Minneapolis and I was stayed at a, like a, it was all I can say. It was like a space hotel that was connected to the mall of America <laughs> And so that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it really it reminded me of the Hilton in 2001. It's like, you know, this is ah, yeah, yeah. It, it's the idea of the future from, you know, the vantage <laughs> of the 60s or something. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, totally. But it just made me realize like living in a mall for 3 days that you know, we worship material and our religion is consumerism. You know, it's yeah. such material beings you know, like we have this deep need to connect to something you know deeper and greater than than material totally yeah but what's so interesting about going through like a some kind of a spiritual awakening or, or whatever is that is that then you can look back at all at all this kind of base material stuff and and see that that there is actually something divine in all that stuff right it's just that it was it's just that that's not it's just that that part, you know, the, the context of divinity, right? The divine context that's there, I think, underneath everything. It's just so often not seen. And so it's weird. Like, I see people who are, I mean, it's exactly like what you described. There's a spiritual hunger, and people are, in fact, finding ways to feed that hunger. But it's through unconscious projective processes where people think they're relating to external objects, <laughs> But actually, those objects have all these deep psychological implications. They're, they're symbolic. They represent things to people. But very often, what they actually mean to people isn't consciously 
or verbally articulated. So it's all kind of still sitting at the level of look at my new car instead of what this my you know, what am I looking for what I'm getting from the car or what I wish I was getting from the car, because in fact, I never fully get it right. I can asymptotically chase it in the car forever and it will never actually satisfy the itch because the itch is something else. I mean, with a car, who knows what it is, it's freedom or masculinity, or, I mean, it's going to depend on your life situation and who you are and all of that sort of stuff, how you relate to these objects. But, but, but you ought to try to, you know, if you can, if you can perceive how the object is reflecting a psychological reality in yourself, then there's a possibility of actually understanding what's going on and maybe integrating some part of yourself that you had split off and were then projected into all these external things, chasing it around, which actually just leads us right back to Interstate 60 because the whole film is, seems like it's kind of about that, right? It's this artist character, Neil, chasing chasing after a girl who's literally the girl of his dreams. It's like Neil's anima or Neil's feminine aspects. But they've been splintered off into this external image that he needs to integrate, which he does through this <laughs> synchronistic dream road adventure with Gary Oldman and Christopher Lloyd and all and everybody else. So, <laughs> well, And the... the... I don't. I, I've lost the thread, but there was. Sorry. No, <laughs> yeah, Saint, there are a lot of threads uh, around well, this movie. The film yeah. takes place in St. Louis, I think, right? Or yes. it opens, which is which is where Bob Gale grew up, I think. So there's an obvious auto bio kind of. But then also the you know the really fascinating thing is I think that's the gateway to the West. You know, so you have that arch as kind of so you know it is the gateway to the interstate. Yeah. Um, but I think St. Louis connects ah, to... Ah, that's interesting. The gateway to the interstate, right. Yeah. I hadn't quite made that association there. That's quite, that's probably quite right, though. But there's something... And you definitely see that archway. They they use that, and they use that in connection with the anima and sort of cell phone communication. It's just interesting to see communication and kind of the divine feminine and that gate as like a womb kind of all overlaid together there and then it's the entrance to yeah to the non-dual the, the interstate yeah but i want to say that... yeah that's kind of what i mean you know this movie is so like <laughs> everything is so symbolically kind of harmonic it always seems to really work no matter what you're looking at in there i feel <laughs> there's another saint louis connection in this in this mess though but i i can't remember where hmm. where i saw it so yeah I don't know that I've, I don't think I've ever been to St. Louis. So I, I don't have really any, any feel for the place from like life experience. Uh, well, and it, it is, it's odd though, because the movie doesn't really, it doesn't, I mean, it, I suppose actually it all takes place in, in St. Louis because Neil is just in the hospital the whole time, actually. But the majority of the movie is, is, you know, it's just moving through all these strange fictional locations. I actually don't know where it was shot. Do you have any idea? Was it actually shot in Missouri? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. No idea. Yeah, I don't know. There's a. I should. I should get the DVD of this movie. Like, I think there is a commentary track on it, 
So there, there may be, you know, production details that could be known that I don't, that I don't know. It's, so it probably. seems like it warrants further viewings for sure. Um, I, yeah. Yeah, I definitely check it out. I mean, well, and then there's this whole, the whole 9-11, like, Back to the Future alignment thing. It's just this whole other layer of, like, craziness on top of this thing, because it's like these 9-11 correspondences that we all know from Joe Alexander's great film, like, like that's exact same symbolic structure, like, <laughs> like the same, really close to the same thing happens in interstate and in a way that I think is deeply 9-11 resonant in a, just a ton of different ways. And so that's kind of what my, what my film is, try, is trying to explore, but it explores it in an alchemical way. You know, you gotta, you gotta kind of um, think about the symbols and I definitely am designing like these things to be really dense so you can kind of watch them on a loop <laughs> and maybe take different attention pathways through it each time and find different little odd connections. What, it's you, funny though, because some of these things, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say you start with the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's in St. Louis. I don't, um, but what, why did you start there? What, why, what was the, I, so yeah, I started with, Terminator 2, uh, which is very much an L.A. movie. But I, I use it for a couple reasons. One is that it, you know, it, does, it does have some interesting 9-11 synchronicities in it that are pretty well documented. Um, but it also... I, I, used, I used stuff from Terminator 1 in, um, in, the, in the first film I did, in, Initiation. And it ends with Sarah Connor driving off in her Jeep towards the mountains. And I wanted to link through with that imagery so you could kind of watch the pieces back to back and there'd be like a, there'd be a little symbolic through line there. Also, I just, I kind of identify a little bit with Sarah, I think, as someone who is convinced they've received information from the future and, you know, everyone thinks they're crazy or whatever. She's a natural sink heroine, I think. But then it also, it, it, you know, a lot of stuff happens when I make these films that are just, there's a really strong synchronistic aspect to how they come together. Uh, and so this wasn't planned, but it does end up being this perfect little bookend with then Sam Neill playing John Trent in, in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. I, I bring in footage from that at the end where he's then in the mental asylum. So it's kind of an inversion. It's like the feminine is imprisoned in an insane asylum at the beginning of the film and then that's inverted, not actually at the very end, but in kind of the final third of the film, we get Sam Neill in the, in the mental institution. But then I'm kind of trying to imply at the end of it that maybe feminine and masculine reunite in their newfound transcendental insanity, or, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. But, uh, yeah. The, re the reason why it was <laughs> interesting, so I'm also reading Dean Radin's Real Magic and so some of the experiments that he's done using utilizing science as a tool not as a religion you know he's right. able to show that time does not necessarily behave the way we experience it in that you can experiment with with precognition and find that <laughs> time <laughs> moves backwards 
in these experiments. Yeah. <laughs> and so it does seem to just be the case that that sometimes there is some kind of strange information leakage. I don't know. I, I just I've, I've I've experienced it and and I've looked at cases, other cases that I find very convincing. What's convincing to me is, 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 when, is when it's dimensional, you know, when it's not just one point of correspondence, but when it's like you had a dream of a plane crash that also included, you know, the time of day and the flight number and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, it's rare, but it does happen. And then you're left with this question of, well, it seems like it's such a high dimensional coincidence. It can't be coincidental. I mean, how can all those, how can all of those details simultaneously align? And technically what's happening is the probability is shrinking and shrinking with each additional point of correspondence. It's way less probable that the whole thing could exist that way. But it's also really hard to get precise numbers on that because it's just not very defined, you know, like what, uh, I don't know, like what's the chance of, well, what's the chance of two kind of mirrored red objects appearing together in a frame? Well, it's more than zero. Actually, it's pretty high. You know, that happens a fair amount. So in isolation, it's, you, you can't kind of get too excited about a single data point. But, but when you have these cluster structures that are, or, or stack structures that are just like all of these details together, I don't know. <laughs> so it's at least really suspicious. And I think it's actually more than that. You know, it, it, implies, some, it implies some kind of organization. Of course, I feel that calling it precognition is almost, I mean, I do call it precognition all the time because what else are you going to call it? But it's almost saying too much or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's hard to know what the mechanism is behind this effect because it's somehow about correspondence. There's no, doesn't seem to be any causality in it or, or any causality that we can understand. I do tend to think of it in terms of like a backwards information flow but I have the feeling that that's a metaphor that I'm using, kind of naively believing that it's real or something. My impression is there's some kind of uh, something way more mind-blowing that is actually going to completely obsolete the idea of time itself, at least in the way we understand it. Or if some other, you know, it, it's just everything about synchronicity seems to point in the direction of a of an, in, of an invisible unifying factor that somehow is doing all of these things. And sometimes it seems as if time behaves as if it's going backwards. And sometimes it's as if it's as if there's a simultaneous kind of emotional resonance with something happening half the world away, or, you know, all of these are kind of different manifestations of, of non-locality, but you know, how it's working and whether it's happening to what extent it involves the psyche and all of these things are just these questions that we maybe we'll never get answers to. I don't know, <laughs> but it seems like Bob Gale is thinking about those kinds of questions, at least a little bit, because I, I read all that stuff in interstate 60 or are we all just projecting things into this movie that shouldn't be there. And if that's the case, it's almost even more bizarre, right? Because the movie Seems, would then seem to anticipate that activity because it's all about projection. So if we're, I don't know, it's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a rat's nest, <laughs> no matter how you pick it apart. Interstate 60 is a movie that shouldn't exist. It's like the interstate. And yet 
yeah, somehow it does. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. you I always love it. It's awesome. <laughs> You've been listening to Jordan Barty on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his interstate from Sync Century on YouTube, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And as I say, messing with people's heads can be a lot of fun. You should try it. When we watched Interstate 60, it was interesting because I 
I, my take was like this movie is about us watching this movie at this point in time. Yeah, it's it's yeah. <laughs> I feel that way about I feel that way about it every time I watch it, which is an, an impressive trick it somehow manages to pull off. Yeah, like like you say, it's it it's a movie that shouldn't exist. It's like it's it, it's totally the interstate. Well, it's, yeah, you don't. Dude, this crazy thing happens. Like, I, like right, like the week that I put up Interstate, this uh, uh, people was it People Magazine, I think. Like Michael J. Fox is, was on the cover of the People Magazine that went out that week with his wife, and it says, you know, thirty-year love story, or whatever, and it's it was like <laughs> Joe actually ran across it while he was traveling. Hmm. And then we were, and then we both ended up having incredibly powerful, like personal think things hook up with and connect around this magazine at the same time. Oh, by the way, did I mention that the, that the story is it's like on page 42. <laughs> this magazine. <laughs> it's like the power of love, 30 years, page 42. It was a really impressive thing. It's like, how often is Michael J. Fox even in the news? Yeah, in the news anymore. You know, it's got to. It can't even be once a year. It must be less than that. And for that to align with that precision in time like that, I just feel like the universe dumped out a Fox photo in response to (laughs) my movie somehow. (laughs) Strange. That's the like the the hardest nugget. So like. The thing that, in all my like synchronicity academic work, like looking at the the uh, the body of literature, that it seems like the strongest, the like the most intense connections, these correspondences, there's there is some kind of emotional component, and that's kind of like yes, I think so, and so. It it does seem like if synchronicity is a universal force, you know, one that we don't understand, but one that we're cursorily beginning to study now, like right, like super baby steps. It does seem like there's like like emotion slash love is kind of like the fuel that's powering. I really agree, and i i think I think I perceive that communicated to me in multiple ways too, like. I feel that my own experience points in that direction, but I also think it's what I'm reading in all of these movies. It's like the slime in Ghostbusters 2. It's literally the slime under New York City that, that, connects, that connects everybody through their emotions, through, through the negative energy, remember? And then, yeah. and then it's the goddess. The Statue of Liberty has to smash through that slime mold to liberate the art museum <laughs> from Vigo, who is maybe a little bit of a Trump resonator even. Uh, uh, but yeah, this, this notion that it's, that it's the emotion, it's the affect somehow that is like the, like the carrier wave for the information. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot and seems, and seems to really fit right in with the whole 9-11 thing because it was so effectively charged for everybody who watched it. And then you think, I mean, it's just what, it's just what uh, Jake Kotze was, you know, began, began the whole conversation with really this, this idea that somehow it's the simultaneity of that. All of these people emotionally resonating together in real time. That somehow there's, you know, that somehow uh, generate, I mean, here's where we can't talk about it anymore, right? 
Here's where it breaks down into something absolutely impossible and incomprehensible. Somehow, that seems to have generated <laughs> symbolic patterns they go... in popular media decades prior to the event. Exactly, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what is going on? And, well, I think I found a major, potentially found a major hermeneutic key to that thing. This red twins vector, and on archive.org I go through and kind of list all the properties of it, and then we go through and find it in all these different movies. It's just amazing how consistent it is. It just cuts a line through all of these 9-11 precog things. You find it in almost every instance, and the contexts are always so similar because it doesn't just appear in like any movie. You know, it appears in particular movies that seem to be that seem to be deep individuation myths, like Back to the Future or Interstate 60, you know. Very psychologically and mythically potent places. That's where these 9-11, <laughs> weird 9-11 correspondences seem to, seem to pop up. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, on the other hand, on the other hand, this is all comparative stuff, you know. We're looking at a lot of weak correspondences in a really big data set. And, you know, you, you can figure stuff out that way, but it's tricky. Uh, and so I'm also just really, you know, I have an intuitive, like I have, I've done the best that I can in my own brain, looking at a huge amount of media to hold them all together and say, what's the con, you know, how can you, how can I make them work together? Well, it turns out the way to make them work together is in this weird 9-11 meta context. <laughs> Once you have that meta context, it's like all these pieces kind of seem like they fit together. But of course, I don't know, and one never knows with this kind of research, to what degree this is like a personal think, or it's a, a wider spread, objectively verifiable thing, which I suppose is a little bit what the archive.org thing is about. It's just my attempt to dump this whole thing out into the world in some forms that some other eyeballs can look at it. And a lot of it's really familiar, like a lot of it's like these movies have been looked at to death, but but I do think there's there's like a deeper layer in them that has to do with this weird this weird this weird twin thing that pulls these numbers along with it. That's what's so impressive to me. Like where the red twins appear, these numerous appear: 116, 119, 191, and it, and it, it finds like different ways to express itself. You know, it's like it comes out on clocks, or it comes out on digital readouts, or it comes out in weird little addition games, you know? There'll be like a bunch of numbers on the screen, <laughs> and you add them together and you get the number, or just very weird things like that that feel code, it feels like, like, a, like yeah, like coded information somehow, you know? Which then really throws a wrench in any attempt to think about synchronicity from the standpoint of like a pure natural force in a sense that isn't intelligent somehow. Because this is, you know, information that's communicated like in a cipher kind of system like that. It's like, that's, that's intelligence probably. Either it's your intelligence projecting it in there, <laughs> or it's a record of some intelligent psychical activity that was occurring while the film was being made. Actually, it's probably both of those things. And so the whole challenge of this work, I guess, is, is, to, is to learn yourself enough that you can calibrate yourself out of the work a little bit and see what maybe is left over. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Is that, is that where you're headed then? Are you, 
chasing red twins? Well, um, I don't know if it's where I'm heading. Um, in, in a certain sense, I think I'm trying to head away from it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it just, it was a thing. It's a thing that has been, and is, and I'm continuing to allow to grow in my brain. Uh, it has had major life consequences really to, to follow this thing. Cause I've, I've had, I mean, in order to put this together, I just can't even explain like the, just the amount of labor and time, just watching these movies at 0.50 X, you know, like combing over for all this stuff. And it's, it's not sustainable. It's obviously not sustainable. <laughs> I need to return the land of the living like at, at some point, but I feel that I have to complete, I feel that I have to finish documenting what I've already done. So that's mostly what, what, what I'm trying to do. But then the, of course the problem is that in the process of doing that, it just keeps rolling. Like I had no idea I was going to find some weird precise time alignment between interstate 60 and back to the future. That just happened while I was preparing my notes for interstate 60. It's like, it's like, oh, yeah, this scene. It's a lot like the Twin Pines Mall. Oh, look, it kind of looks like it's happening at the same point in the film as the Twin Pines Mall. Oh, look, actually, both movies <laughs> are the same length almost exactly, and the two scenes just fall over each other like almost exactly. And then if you nudge one just a little bit, the moment of impact aligns, then all these other impossible alignments happen. And so then you're, you know, you've been sucked back into the, to the mystery or whatever. So my feeling is that you know, I'm going to, there's a, like a core set of artifacts that I'm trying to get through. After we close out the Bob Gale stuff, it's going to be Hellraiser probably. Hmm. And then there are a few things after that, just places where I feel like the constellation really is really strong and really comes together. I want to get all that stuff documented. And then when that's over, I don't know. I, I, I mean, my, my life is a major, I mean, this is the other interesting thing about interstate is I am Neil Oliver, really, you know, I'm a struggling artist in the middle of a major life transition, trying to figure out how to like, <laughs> I don't know, monetize my creativity somehow. So it's very weird to be thinking to this movie at this point in time. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting to hear you mention that you had that feeling about watching it originally, that it, that it was describing, <laughs> You watching it, it, it really, there's a weird vortex to, to that movie. It, it also, is, because that was like 2011, of... you know? It's like, it feels like ancient history at this point wow, in time. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was still, I was, what was I? I was working on my PhD. I was very much in a left brain um, zone <laughs> in 2011. Interstate 60 was very definitely not on or not on my radar. Yeah. Well, I think I need to to get cleaned up and go to work here shortly. But I'm curious. I know yeah. that you you uh, Robert Anton Wilson was a big component of the your yeah. part, part two of the Prince of Darkness. I'm wondering, have you read much of him? Yes. Um, I'm not like a Robert Anton Wilson expert or anything, but you know, I've read, I've read Cosmic Trigger one. I've read parts of Cosmic Trigger two. I've, I've read Prometheus Rising. I read the stuff he, the collabs he did with um, Kim Leary, like the Game of Life or whatever that early stuff. Um, I haven't really read much of the later Robert Anton Wilson stuff. You know that he was writing in the late '90s and 
beyond the um but I have an okay graph of like the eighties era stuff, I guess. Well so is so it it's funny because I know a lot of the a lot of the guys I was, you know, messing around with back in the early sync days, it was Cosmic Trigger was the it was the one that everyone it was It was the Cosmic Trigger, yeah. <laughs> but That's interesting. Um yeah, it it was. Um but for whatever reason I was more gravitating towards his Illuminatus trilogy. And I wonder Ah, interesting. Yeah, I've never I've never read that, but I'm very I'm very interested to. Have, have you read them? Are they good? I think I've done the first two. I don't think I did the third one, but I right. um I think you know, it's more like a traditional creative vehicle where he's conveying the ideas artistically. So it's is Cosmic right. Trigger telling about his life, like writing the Illuminatus <laughs> right. trilogy, and then experiencing all the weirdness? Right? Is that what it is? Yeah, I guess so. I um, kind of like a kind of like a PKD Valis situation. Yeah. Okay. That's what it. That's what it seems like. Yeah, I, I feel I like I, really know I need to yeah. read more, more raw. I need more raw in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same. Really. He, <laughs> He was just such a great. I mean, I always just appreciate his humor, you know, and how um, how light he keeps it, even when it's getting really weird. Because I, I'm not so good at that actually. Like, I, I, I mean, I guess I am maybe just in my persona or something. But when I make these films, like, <laughs> they always seem to get a little like skitzed out and kind of dark or something. And uh, like, Interstate is a little hard for me to watch sometimes. Actually, you know, it just has so much alien weird, creepy energy in it or something. Hmm. And uh, uh, I realized, too, that I just, you know, I actually just love, you know, I just love that stuff. But it's, it's just what it is. But but I appreciate other people's vibes. And I, I appreciated the way that that Robert Anton Wilson would, you know, he goes into those zones. It's not like he doesn't approach weird, dark territory, but he always does it with this kind of, glee or it's just kind of like romping through a tour of, you know, I just imagine him in like a, in tights almost like skipping through the conspiracy underground as this, as this total, like, uh, I mean, that, that doesn't do justice to his depth or whatever, but you know, there's a definite jester or, or I suppose this kind of trickster aspect to, uh, to Robert Anton. Will. I mean, the whole discordian thing and, and uh, there's definitely kind of like fuck you, like culture hijack thing going on with him. Which I really enjoy. Speaking of dark places, did you what do you, what do you make of Alan's latest project? That he did you see that? Oh man, Vision in the Voice. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. I, I watched. It. Actually, I made, I made my whole family watch it. We had a, <laughs> a whole like sit down on the you know big screen TV thing with it. Uh, I thought it was great. I really like. Um, I did just like it aesthetically, you know. I liked how um, how dense he let himself get with the with the composites, you know. There's like a it just kind of I don't know. The whole thing is it's just so different from. I just really enjoyed it because it's so different from my work, which my video work anyway, which tends to be more. Um, you know, I'm always playing around with frames and boxes, and it's all kind of like a card metaphor or something. So it's a little it's a little. Um, uh, yeah, like st- st- structured, I suppose. But Alan's thing is just kind of like clouds, you know, like 
forming <laughs> in denser and denser groups of clouds and then and then kind of disperses. I don't know, there's just something so organic and cool about it and I I don't know, I really liked it. And I also thought it works really well as a as a yeah, just a kind of a a slightly less um like I thought it was actually quite generous, you know, like it it leads you through the sink tunnels like at a at a very I felt like a measured and considered pace that was why I wanted to share it with my family actually. What did they like, What did they make of it? Would it? be like a good like outreach thing. Yeah, but what <laughs> uh, do they, What do they make of it? Like, is it is it just bizarre or is it like oh that's that's fascinating or they were they were fascinated by it. Um, but my parents, you know, are are kind of weird themselves. Uh, they're 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 into strange. Stuff. They were, you know, my 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 dad was a was a you know a hippie and et cetera et cetera. So there's there's obvious bridges there. I, I, I don't want to I don't want to paint an impression like I sat my conservative family <laughs> or something. Lunch <laughs> <laughs> movie it was is not at all that kind of scenario. But um, but yeah, they 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 they, they quite enjoyed it. I think that it I think it probably helps them um understand a little more just kind of like the i don't know the world of ideas that that i'm more or less living in you know um i don't know i also just really appreciate it as a chance to just like connect to alan somehow you know i, I don't know alan personally I've, I've just spoken to him once or twice over the internet kind of thing um but i've always been really appreciative of what he did putting the sync book together and putting this whole community together. And cause you know, uh, it definitely helped me to have some, you know, to see that there was like <laughs> some kind of structure or something around this thing that, you know, you're not just totally alone in the world or, or whatever. I feel like Alan kind of, I mean, I mean, I know it was a huge community effort or whatever, but just that whole, that era before I was around, of course. And it, it's just like very cool that that, exists now as a beacon for uh for people and it was it was cool to see alan um yeah it's just good to know that people are working on stuff quietly you know and then every now and then like something something awesome like vision in the voice drops and it's a big celebration <laughs> yeah all right well we'll have to chat again uh, you're super yeah. pro- prolific and so Cool. Well, I very much look forward to it. I, I look forward to more work. It's always it's, it's a thing, man. Thank you. You have a great day. All right. You too, Doug. Talk to you later.